What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there Kevin Kelly is the principal and co-founder of Shook Kelly, an atypical architecture and design firm that specializes in consumer behavior for retail and consumer-based companies. Kevin has spent a large portion of his career developing a process that combines business, science, and design into one integrated approach he calls perception design. Kevin's specialty is getting inside the minds of consumers to determine how the physical environment affects consumer behavior and purchase decisions. He is also especially adept at helping consumer-based organizations rethink how they innovate their go-to-market strategies. Kevin has worked closely with the leaders of many well-known companies such as Harley-Davidson, Whole Foods, Kraft, Cadbury, the J.M. Smucker Company, and USAA in their efforts to develop new kinds of immersive brand experiences. He has taught courses on branding and marketing for the professional development program of Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. This episode is going to take you behind the scenes of one of the true innovators of today. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc And you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or... Whatever else you do for fitness, no matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple, too, to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. So so I'm interested, Kevin. It's 7.30 a.m. here on a Thursday, and you requested this early start time. So I'm intrigued by that. Are are you an early riser? Uh, Yes, I am. Uh, I'm in the office pretty early, and... uh... I tend to get up really early to get a lot done. Uh, I actually kind of love mornings. Uh, there's something really nice about it. Uh, I don't know how often it happens to you, but sometimes I have to drive to the airport at four in the morning and 
or five in the morning. And it's just absolutely beautiful that time of the morning. You seem to be able to think very clearly and uh, there's a lot going on in your mind, but it's still pretty peaceful out there. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. There's certain times I try to get up hours before anyone else, my wife, my son, just so I can think clearly and do different things. So what's your actual morning routine look like on a typical day then? You know, I wish I was one of those types of people that got up and worked out. Uh, my wife does that, and I'm a big believer in exercise, but um, I've always exercised in the evenings, which I know is uh, kind of contrary to a lot of uh, a lot of what other business people do. But um, I like to get up in the morning, and uh, I actually normally spend a, a little time by myself, reflective, uh, generally in my spiritual side or my Zen side, and. So I take about 30 minutes just to myself to try to get my head clear. And I normally focus on one idea or one thought um, in a very reflective way. Um, my wife and I are big smoothie eaters, so we eat pretty healthy. And so in the morning, we get the smoothies all ready. Uh, we kind of joke about it. Um, and then we get the tea and the coffee ready and the dog ready and the, the baby all set up. And then we get started with our day. Uh, I tend to write the best in the morning. So I really try to block out. Um, all the way from, I'd say, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., sometimes 11 a.m., just to normally write and get strategy done. Um, I notice a lot of people try to deal with meetings, and we all have to deal with meetings, and people just take them at all times of the day. And I actually kind of have a rule. I, I tell people I'll do meetings at 10, 2, and 3, and that really helps me because um, I know I have that block of time from 6 to 10 to get a lot done. And I find if I start trying to write at 2 p.m., uh, it's not very good. Uh, my brain starts to get dulled, and uh, it kind of shifts into a different gear. And he didn't ask about this, but I'll go all the way to it. I, I, I generally stop work around 5.30, and then I go do uh, Muay Thai martial arts for about an hour and a half, which is completely intense, with a bunch of hungry animals waiting in a gym to tear at me. <laughs> and... Uh, so I don't get home until, you know, it isn't too bad, but around 7.30, I get home and then we start doing the dinner routine. And uh, so the mornings are really critical to, to get a lot of your very important stuff done. I like how you brought up that you're an evening workout type of person, because I think so many people, they'll, they'll read the articles that you must work out in the morning. And that's just not the case. And this seems to work much better for you. I'm really interested in your writing sessions between 6 to 10 a.m., when you're sitting there, I'm assuming this is in your office, are you just at your computer, all websites closed, things like that, and you're just writing? How does that look? I have two offices, uh, you know, um, one at home that I really write in if I, if I want to be completely uninterrupted. And it's not a big office. It's a small little kind of library space uh, loaded with books that seem to give me good energy. And if I'm in that space, I don't do, I don't look at any emails or any websites. If I come to the office, it's pretty hard not to just check in really quickly. So I kind of make a rule, uh, just go through my emails. Um, probably like a lot of people, uh, on average, I will have 70 to 120 emails every day. And so as soon as I wake up, and so I just quickly skim those and I flag them as the ones I really got to deal with. But I try not to deal with them right there. Um, I close my office door, which is a glass door. And then I really try to just focus, um, kind of like a good jog or a good run. Uh, I try to clear my head and not have too many distractions. Don't take any calls. Um, 
you know, my, my uh, executive assistant kind of jokes sometimes. He goes, you know, for an extroverted guy, you're pretty introverted. Uh, and in that morning space, I'm pretty introverted. Has this been something you've been refining over the years? Yeah, it's been, been an observation that I've made. Um, I've been working as my own company for almost 27 years now and worked, you know, five years prior to that or maybe eight years prior to that. And I really realized that I write the best in the morning. And that kind of observation helped me think about a lot of things. And I've actually done some studies on it and research on it, talked with some kind of social scientists about it to say, you know, what happens? And, you know, they just say your brain's so clear and rested. Uh, There's something about sleeping and dreaming that helps you uh, resolve all the issues you have the day before. And when you wake up, you feel pretty rested and ready to go. But it's not that the rest of the day is horrible, but you just start, you know, dealing with problems all day that you've got to solve and all the tough problems come to the boss. So <laughs> by the end of the day, I, I, you know, I, I haven't solved every problem. I've solved the ones I could. You mentioned reaching out to the social scientists. Is that something you'll typically do when, when you're interested in the topic or trying to solve a problem? Do you look for some of the best people in that field and reach out to them directly? Yeah, I've actually studied, uh, I'd say, three to four areas my entire life. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I was so lucky that that my mom and dad encouraged me to read, but um, I was kind of an odd kid in that I had put up three giant bookshelves in my room, and I organized my books, and I'm talking like at 11, 12 years old. Uh, one whole section was based on the social sciences, psychology, sociology, anthropology. I had another section that was all based on religious books, um, all the different religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, uh, Jewish religion, Christian. I, I had all the religious books. And then I had a third category that was all the business books. And uh, I remember reading, at, I think I was 11 years old, I read On a Clear Day, You Can See General Motors by John DeLorean before he got in all kind of trouble. And then I read Ted Turner's book, uh, which was fascinating. And some one of my dad's friends came in one time, and he said, "He said your your son's kind of odd." I could hear him talking. He goes, "He goes I, all those books. That's a bit intense for a young kid, isn't it?" And then finally, the man came over, and he was a doctor himself, and he said, "You know, what's the organization there, and why those organizations?" And I said, "Well, all three categories." you know, provide some kind of salvation. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, some people think if they figure out the psychology of their life, you know, why their mother beat them with a wooden spoon, you know, they'll figure out the answer to life. And then some people think if they could just find God and the answer, the one, then they'd figure out life. And some people think if I just get rich enough or successful enough or famous enough, I'll figure out life. And he he looked at me kind of shocked and he said, well, what is the answer? And I said, well, I don't know. It's somewhere in between all three. Uh, there's something really interesting about this quest that we all have. Uh, one's an interior journey. One seems to be kind of more spiritual journey, and the other seems to be kind of a personal success journey. And I, uh, I've always leaned on that my whole life. Um, whenever I'm working on a project, uh, and my business is creativity and innovation, which you know sounds sounds interesting on the surface, but to be creative day in and day out is is pretty challenging. Um, you just constantly got to come up with a new idea. 
uh, I have a very kind of uh, elaborate uh, traditional ritualistic process I go through. And one of those aspects is to not think about the problem directly, not to schedule time to, quote, solve that problem, but to constantly read things tangentially that might relate to it. And that might come from social science. That might come from business. Uh, oftentimes, it might come from going to a movie or a rock concert or a truck pull. Uh, any one of those things can really feed me. And, um, and so I'm constantly looking for ways to feed creativity. I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of uh, out there as an idea. No, it makes perfect sense. And something that's been reiterated from other guests in the past, you mentioned you have a specific ritual to, to tap into this creativity. Can you go through that or is that a personal thing? No, no, it's totally fine. Um, you know, as soon as I get an assignment from a client and uh, and that whole process of one trying to get the job, which is always important, um, but then when a client comes in, they lay down a big, giant, complicated assignment that they're oftentimes not very clear about. Uh, I would liken it to a patient, a famous patient coming into your office, uh, your doctor's office and saying, I need you to cut out my spleen. And you'd say, well, why? And he goes, well, I'm not feeling well. <laughs> You're like, well, it may not be your spleen. No, I know it's my spleen. Just cut out my spleen. And I have to talk them into letting me run some diagnostics and let me run some tests because more often than not, it's not the spleen. It's something else altogether. And they normally agree with that. Uh, my history of our firm has been that they, they agree with that. Um, so I have to really then go about defining the problem exceedingly well. Um, this is what I, I don't think many companies do or organizations do. They tend to chase answers in search of problems. But I'm very interested in getting crystal clear about what the problem is. As I said, I really stress that word, define the problem exceedingly well, to the point that you have an aha. I don't know if you've ever been to the doctor and and you're not feeling well, and they start diagnosing what's wrong with you, and they don't even give you the answer. They just tell you what's wrong with you, and you go home amazed. You're like, oh, my God, that's perfect. Uh, I had a hiatal hernia one time and I didn't know what that was. And I remember my doctor, I was so felt so weird telling him, you know, about my problem. And he said, does it feel like a tennis ball on fire in the middle of your chest? And I was like, yes, that's profound. How did you come up with that? And he's like, well, I've done this before. And there's a real comfort in that. There's even though it's not the solution. And so I'm always trying to blow my client's socks off by defining the problem exceedingly well because once i know that problem i can then go about solving the answers or finding the answers or discovering them and so you know related to the process the first thing i do once i get a client is i don't judge the client i don't judge solutions i just start creating note fields and i write lots of notes scattered notes um i normally used to do them in a notepad which i still do but i carry my iphone you know, uh, people joke with me if they look at my phone, I have so many note fields, but I'm just constantly writing notes down about what I think of the problem. And I start relating what the client told me to what else is happening in society. Um, I ask my staff to do the exact same thing. And these are people of different trades and disciplines, but to not share their thoughts with me for a while. I'm like, don't, don't share anything with me. And uh, I often times don't read everything the client provides me. I, I actually want to try to look at the problem non-judgmentally. And eventually I pull all my staff together 
and we start putting our ideas into what we call buckets. And we have a wall where we just put all the ideas into different buckets. And you might say, well, what are the buckets called? Well, we have a bucket that's called psychology. We have a bucket called the problem, a bucket called design, a bucket called strategy. We have two buckets that are really interesting on the wall. Uh, we have one bucket called the truth. And that's the really interesting wall. And that's where we just say the truth that, that nobody will admit or the client won't say, such as maybe they don't make a great product. And and then we have a, another kind of wall where we say the problem. And we really start trying to define that problem down. And so um, long answer there, but we just really try to approach things from a beginner's mind. And uh, the only other thing that would start to evolve from that is I start working on outlines not text or anything. I just start working on putting things down into an outline. And um, this whole process takes about six to eight weeks for us for most of our projects. I'm so intrigued by this process, the buckets. I'd like to add a little context though. Can you explain specifically what you guys do at Shook Kelly? It's a very interesting uh, kind of a business and very unique and unorthodox, but uh, I'm an architect, trained as an architect. Uh, my business partner is trained as an architect. Um, we do a lot of architecture, but essentially what we really study is how to convene human beings in place. And what does that mean? That means how do you get human beings to go to a Harley-Davidson store or to an urban district, particularly if that urban district is blighted, or to a restaurant or a shopping center or a university or an orchestra? And so it's a very interesting study of kind of what will bring a human, not just attract them, but what will kind of make them fall into a deep relationship and a bond with a place that actually has an idea, a form, and an experience. So if you think of a place, as I said, Harley-Davidson store, it's a very powerful place. And while you Harley-Davidson can exist online, it's nowhere near as deep as what happens to human beings when they come together in a physical place. And so our business is kind of a mix of uh, an alchemy of business, science, and design, kind of mixed all into one. And we've been doing this since 1992, which is before Google and iPhones and Facebook and all the other things. And, you know, the world has changed a lot because people are convening in other ways on Facebook and other areas. So now more than ever, the power of place and the ability to convene in place is incredibly important. Uh, there's billions and billions of dollars of places that need to survive. And so we help them, help them really not only survive, but essentially thrive. When this business started 27 years ago, were you that concise and that's what you guys were doing? Or was it a completely different business at the time? Uh, it was pretty similar. Um, what we were fascinated with was how how environment affects behavior. Um, as an architect going to school, um, as much as I love being an architect and love the academic pursuit, um, so much of what they were teaching us was really what I call about the laws of aesthetics, composition, scale, color. And it was very intellectual. We called it talk architecture. And people would, with scarves and, you know, pink Mercedes would decide, is that art or not? And I was really disappointed in that particular aspect of design because it normally only helped the elite and the intellectuals, but it didn't really help the everyday person and who, who didn't you know, look at the world through the lens of art, but looked at the world through the lens of getting tasks done and jobs done. 
Uh, I kind of likened it to doctors. Imagine if every doctor just wanted to do plastic surgery, which to some degree has happened, but nobody really wanted to deal with cleft lips or basic problems that the average consumer has. And so I became less interested in style and more interested in behavior, how a building can either make us more pro-social or more agitated, more anxious or more comforted, um, how it can bond us and unite us in ways. Uh, we call it a bonfire. How does it bring people together? And this idea of a bonfire, and you know, if you think about a great bonfire, you'll go through a lot of trouble to get to a bonfire, and you'll be around a bunch of people that are strangers that you don't even know. But the bonfire, if it's just right, if it has just the perfect bonfire tender, uh, or the bonfire master kind of managing that bonfire, it will take a group of strangers and turn them into a temporary community of kind of mysticism and uh, uniting. And I became fascinated with that behavioral aspect. And so when we started the firm, one big aspect was studying how environment affects behavior. Um, we were also interested in perception, how people perceive their world, and I'd say biologically, socially, emotionally. Um, and we started really looking at the idea of perception management, of how to shape perceptions through environment. And uh, I was interested in more what we call the micro level of behavior, what happens to people in a Harley store, a Whole Foods store, or an Apple store. And my partner was much more interested in what happens to behavior on a much larger scale and what we call mixed-use urban developments or large-scale projects. And so we both do the same thing, just at different scales. Yeah, you've told me you had a, a childhood neurosis and an obsession with how environment affects behavior and how that shapes perception, and then that you actually use that as a propeller to move your life forward. Can we unpack that and, and how that started and, and what age you, you discovered this at? Yeah, um, I, I was a young kid, and uh, you know, all of us kind of need to find our calling in life, which I, I think is everywhere I go is the biggest pursuit. And most people have a challenge in finding their calling until later in life. And and I empathize and sympathize with those people because I know it's a challenge to find it. And I always say, don't don't look for what makes you happy. Look for what pisses you off. And what pisses you off is something you'll fight for. It's something you'll actually do for free. And when you find that, you'll find your calling. But it's got to be something that really makes you angry. And most people won't pursue the territory of what makes them angry because it's so important to them, they won't touch it. But what made me angry as a kid was bad environments. I would get upset at somebody's house if the living room just wasn't laid out in a way that was conducive to bringing family together or a restaurant. And I mean, I was, it just was a neurosis that I had. And I was constantly rearranging furniture in our own house and in other places. Uh, my mom happened to be very good at design, so she knew how to set it up just perfect. And, you know, when you're a kid, your dad always scares you, but even though they're harmless, but you, you just think of him as this giant. And my dad would come home from work kind of upset about the day. And I knew if we set the environment up just right, he would love it. He would really enjoy it. And so that was a bit of a neurosis, uh, without a doubt. I mean, it made for an odd kid. Uh, I already had all those books, and then I was meticulous about setting up furniture. But it, it, I figured it out. This is what I love. And so by the age of six, I already knew that I wanted to be an architect, and I wanted to be involved in design and kind of finding ways to make people comfortable, make people feel beautiful. 
make them feel want to talk to people at a young age. And so I just started really focusing on that. And um, I never really saw a business with it. Uh, it was really more of a personal, idealistic pursuit that I really never let go of. And when we started the firm in 1992, we didn't have any other firms to model, to study. We really had to create all this on our own, which was exciting and daunting at the same time. So you're six years old. You have this focus. You have this vision. What are next steps for you then as you try to obtain new skills at that age? You know, I think what I was thirsty for was information um, and ideas. And, you know, I heard something Winston Churchill said one time, and, and I'm not going to say it the exact way, but he essentially was saying he wasn't a great student in school. But the thing he got really well and never forgot was concepts. He could grasp concepts so quickly. And I feel that way about myself. Um, I, I did well in school, but but I wasn't the, you know, the valedictorian or something. But I really grasped concepts. And anytime I heard a concept, even in elementary school or classes on TV and books and magazines, I could grasp that concept. And I was quickly pulling together all kinds of concepts. And, you know, when I was a kid, finding information was hard. Uh, it was an art. Finding a good book was an art. Finding a good rock and roll album was an art. You know, you had to buy the whole album and you, you couldn't test it or anything. And uh, so I, I got really good at finding great thinkers and great concepts and great philosophies and kind of what I'd call models of the world. And I became fascinated with the models of the world. And I never really grabbed one and said, that's it. I, I would just take that up model itself and then compare it to other models of the world. Can you dive deeper on concepts? Uh, I'm asking because I'm so intrigued about what you brought up with Churchill. When you hear a new concept, what does that actually look like to you? Well, I mean, it can be as something something as simple as that book title, uh, First Slow, Then Fast. You know, when you hear that, just even that right off the bat has a great concept. You're like, oh, very interesting. And then if you dig down deeper in that concept, you do start to realize that things do start to unwind or come together very slow. And then all of a sudden there's an avalanche. And if you start taking that principle or that concept and looking at everything from the way animals rise in the jungle to the way uh, Facebook spreads across the world, you start to realize there's such a powerful idea there. And you don't have to remember everything about that idea. You just really have to remember the kernel of the idea. Um, and so there are just concepts out there everywhere I go. Um, almost every entity, even movies, are trying to get across a concept. And so I'm always trying to reduce things down to what is the concept, what is the model, uh, what is the view that they're trying to pull out. And some concepts are really deep and some are very basic. Um, I, you know, uh, had a hypothesis that environment affects behavior when I was young, but I didn't know. I couldn't prove that. And part of the firm's growth was really trying to prove that environment affects behavior um, because it, at the point I started, it was a hypothesis. And I kind of believe everybody, every individual, particularly in business, needs to kind of have a theory of the world. They need to have their own hypothesis uh, about what's out there. And then they need to spend their life trying to prove or disprove that hypothesis or refine it or even adjust the hypothesis. Um, uh, but I think without a theory of the world, it's 
it, it's very or a theory on your market even you know it could be your specific territory and sometimes people ask me well how do i even start to develop a theory and i believe everybody actually has one internally i believe every client has one and every entrepreneur has one but it's just buried deep down inside them oftentimes right next to their values and so what i really try to tell people is try to think about the world being in balance and when it was in balance for you and then try to tell me when it was out of balance most people believe it's out of balance right now at every moment they're in and they normally have an idea of what can put it back in balance and i'm like then that's the area you need to focus on and for all of us it's different some people think you know equality will bring the world back in balance some people think economics will bring it back some people think just you know nicer design will bring it back or better communication and it gets much more granular than that. And for me, I thought there was too much style and not enough good behavior. And so I was really, that was my focus. I wanted to make, you know, that better. And to get even more specific, I wanted to make the world better for everyday people. Uh, I didn't want to make it better for the rich or the elite. I was really trying to make the everyday lives of people much better than they are. Even something as basic as the dry cleaner experience or going to the grocery store our convenience store. I was like, why does it have to be so harsh and horrible? Why can't these be better experiences? And so that for me was how the world was out of balance and politics wasn't it for me, but I know it is for other people. And I think that's, what's beautiful about all of us. Do you have a handful of, of key concepts or principles that, that you've distilled down and sort of live your life by at this point? You know, I haven't really articulated it, but I'm, I'm sure I do. I'm sure I do if I really started unpacking that. But, um, you know, I mean, to definitely start with, the environment effects behavior is, is a giant one for me. And, you know, I, I tend to focus so much around that perception is uh, a major issue for me and really looking at perception over fact and that most people live their lives kind of guided by their perceptions and aren't totally aware that they are perceptions. They tend to call them facts. And so I'm interested in, in those two big notions. Um, but I, I'm sure I would have many other concepts. I haven't really thought about it in that way in terms of articulating, and I probably should. Yeah, no, I was interested just for my own curiosity if you actually had articulated yet. So it seems that you have these concepts in your head. A little while ago, you mentioned that you hated going into bad environments. Let's flip that around. What has been your favorite environment you've ever stepped foot in? Well, I mean... I've always been intrigued with religious facilities and particularly when they're done right and that they have the ability to let somebody walk in in the morning one way, sit down for an hour or two in a very controlled environment where you can see light coming through a stained glass window and you can see the particles of dust in the air and you can hear a pen drop when it's a good speaker. and you can, there's a certain type of smell and there's a certain type of ambiance that happens and a person potentially could walk out different. They could actually go in at eight or nine and come out at 1220, a different person, at least for the week or for the day. And I was very intrigued with the power to transform people. And the, that always fascinated me was how people went in and came back out. But throughout my life, I've been looking at places that actually have good behaviors. And, you know, the funny thing is it's oftentimes not done by 
the most elite educated designers, uh, they oftentimes create buildings that are anti-human. They tend to be more objects, not socially facilitative buildings. And oftentimes what I find are the best places are the places that non-trained, non-educated designers, at least just average people put together, merchants. And merchants really fascinate me. So if you go here in LA, if you go to some of the Mexican markets, they're unbelievable places. I mean, they have bountiful of products. They have Mexican mariachi bands playing. There's people dress up and bring the whole family in there, hanging out. And something happens between those merchants and the community. It's it's a beautiful intersection. Uh, and all of a sudden, something arises out of that. And my pursuit in life has really been looking at a lot of where commerce and community intersect. And as I've studied it, and my partner and I looked at it, you know, if you go all the way back through history, the ancient agora, the market, was always the center of town. Uh, not the church, not the city hall, but really the market. That's where life happened. And I became very fascinated with that uh, throughout the ages and up till now. But there's something that the merchants understand. And when I say merchant, not a retailer, just a average guy or lady that knows how to create, you know, great environments. You see it in Bangkok, you see it in Vietnam, you see it in these other areas. In LA, we have all these things called mini malls. They're the little tiny shopping centers everywhere that all always failed. The original design failed and these ethnic groups will come in and redevelop them and make them work and really create little tiny little pockets of great behavior. How important has it been for you understanding the history of this? Oh, it's pivotal. No, I, I think studying the nature of of retail and, you know, as an architect, um, architects historically as an institution find retail uh, repulsive. They, they, they find the, the idea of marketing and selling and branding, they, they find it antithetical. Uh, it rubs their academic hairs the wrong way. Uh, many Years ago, I did a lecture at Columbia University. I, I think they brought me in as a target practice, but that they described they described uh, the lecture title uh, in code. Although they, I eventually talked them out of this, but they said it's retail design the antichrist architecture, and I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, "Are you that threatened by it?" And um, they acted as if they didn't buy anything and i i was looking around the room at a lady who had who was one of the critics who had a prada briefcase on her and a and a burberry jacket and i was like you, you're a part of this you're you're a big part of this great value exchange and you know that that's the thing i, I think we sometimes try to deny commerce and we think of it as this ugly thing and it's really just been an essential part of society forever and i'm very interested in that great value exchange that's been happening before there was currency. And so, yeah, it's very important to me to understand it. I do think, however, that what hasn't happened is to bring meaning into commerce and to bring purpose and value and uh, you know beliefs into it. And so that has definitely been a big part of what I've tried to do. I, I am not interested in manipulating human beings. Um, I'm interested in kind of how something can solve a problem in your life, make your life better, help you imagine new possibilities. And so whenever I'm working with my clients, I'm trying to find the, the real meaningful aspects. And, you know, these are companies that are competing against Walmart and Amazon and big giant 
steamroller killers. So um, I feel like I'm doing something pretty noble in that we're, we're helping these entrepreneurial businesses survive these commodity, you know, mega, mega monsters. You mentioned the importance of history. You've also mentioned a few different places all over the map. How important is travel for you? It's extremely, you know, uh, I, I would say, you know, when I went to college, uh, I, I grew up in the woods almost, uh, you know, before I went to college, I grew up near a place called Loxahatchee, Florida, if you know that. And it was at the time, it was the swamps. I mean, my house was on a dirt road and uh, and the house was built up high because of the water in the area. And I grew up hunting alligators and turtles and airboats and buggies and all kinds of things. And as much as I had seen that beautiful forest, which I never regret, uh, I was visually ignorant and I was visually illiterate and I had not seen enough. And what I think happens over time is you train your eye, just like you train a muscle or just like you train your fingers to play guitar, you train your eye. And the more you see and the more you experience, the, the much more finite your understanding, not only of what you see, but really understanding culture and how culture comes together. And so when I started traveling around the world, I really started understanding so much about how society convenes and what brings people together. And you really, you really understand how young America is when you go to other cultures and you start seeing, you know, how they've been doing things for thousands of years and we've been doing things for hundreds of years. And uh, there's a big difference. Along the lines of training your eye, I don't expect myself or the listeners to be able to really put ourselves in your shoes. But when you walk into a new environment, let's call it a new country, what are you first looking at? What are you first feeling? You know, the thing I tell my clients, and it'd be the same thing I do when I travel, is, you know, um, I, I think we suffer from too much data in this world. And, and I'd say data because data to me is the lowest form of, of information. And sometimes data will move to information and it'll move up a pyramid to knowledge and uh, wisdom and maybe a truth. And, but most of the time when I go to clients, they just have too much data and surveys and intercepts. And, you know, we've become crazy with this research and it's all asking people overtly what they think. And what I think is the best thing you can do is just look at body language and to train your eye to look at body language. And if you own a store or a business, watch how people walk into your church or your synagogue and look at their body language. Do they come in happy and inspired? And you can tell 90% of communication is body language. And then watch them move around their buildings. Watch them walk around and look where they seem happy and where they slow down and where they versus where they speed up and get out. And once you start looking at that body language, and I guess most importantly, watch them leave your building. And this, again, doesn't have to be retail. It could be in any entity, an office building, a park, a city, just look at body language and you can learn so much. And we're all trained as a species to understand body language. We know when there's a threat and we know when there's harmony. Uh, our brain is wired to look for enhancement impediments to life. Uh, it's really that simple. When we walk down the street in a city we've never been in before, we know when there's danger. We just feel it because we're hardwired to feel it. And we know when things are safe. Well, the same thing, that lizard brain is on all day long in regular life. And so I just tell people, look at body language. Um, 
I spend a lot of my time with my clients who are very smart, very trained, helping them look at their spaces in a way they've never looked at them before. And so that's one way. There, there are several other tricks and techniques and tools we use that I could go over if you wanted. But um, that, that's the first one. It's just really studying body language. Yeah, I would love if you could expand upon one or two more of these. Sure. So body language one to look for wardrobe and clothing and cars and shoes and look for trends and patterns. Um, clothing, cars, shoes, bags, jewelry, these are all signals. These are all kind of things that people are saying to communicate to others. We don't just randomly put on clothes in the morning. Most of us don't. Uh, um, but we, we generally you know, think about the watch we're going to wear, the shoes we're going to wear. And, and that doesn't mean everybody thinks about it in a design way. Some people put on an old pair of cowboy boots. And the same with cars. We go through a lot of trouble thinking about the car we're going to drive. And some people, you know, drive a status-oriented car full of power and sex, and other people might drive an old pickup. But it's saying something about who they are. And if you start looking for patterns and trends, particularly around your business or your uh, entity, and you start going, it's interesting. Everybody here has a book bag. Or everybody here wears leather jackets. Or everybody here has long hair and facial hair. These are all signals. And they're communicating something. And I'm very intrigued with that. And whenever we work with a client, we're trying to look at, well, what is what are people wearing? What are they, what are they doing? Um, so, so that's very important to us. Um, you know, I, I certainly look for when people are laughing and when people are having a good time. And it's interesting. In the early part of my career, I would design restaurants, and sometimes it might be an 8,000, 10,000 square foot restaurant, but I noticed sometimes people only used 25% of the place. That's where everything happened, and they wouldn't use the other parts. And that's when we really started realizing that's you got to find the place people will go to naturally. Um, there, there's something about us. We're hardwired to it. Uh, you know, a dog will always face looking towards a door. A dog won't walk in a room and turn its back to a door. And a dog would generally go to where the sunlight is in a room. Well, as humans, we're kind of wired very similar. Uh, we have a way of behaving and a way of congregating that, that is very interesting. And um, it's really important to break that down. I'm so intrigued now thinking about these different concepts when I walk into a new space. Earlier, you mentioned the bonfire. And is that at the root of all this? When, whenever working with with a new client or trying to solve a new problem, is it all about that bonfire experience? Yeah, you know, I think unfortunately we have this tendency in our society, and it, it's just it's just what happens where we latch onto a word, and a word will have an idea in it, but then eventually the word becomes so pervasive and so overused that it almost loses its idea. And I think the word brand is so confused now, and even the the practice of branding and it's still vital and we do a lot of branding and brand strategy and brand audits in our firm but it's kind of lost its value and you know if you talk to somebody about creating a brand it, it can be it can become an exercise and kind of reduction or almost stupidity and really what we're talking about is managing a meaning and really meaning management but even more importantly in the world i work in we're talking about trying to bring people together and what I'm fascinated in, with are where are the bonfires in society? Where do people naturally convene? And how I came up with the term was when I was a kid growing up in Loxahatchee, Florida, um, there was no guidebook or no announcement, no public 
bulletins or anything, but we all knew every Sunday that we would drive two to three miles out into the swamps. And getting through the swamps, you had to build a, a vehicle that looked like something out of Mad Max. You, and you would normally break an axle or destroy your vehicle trying to get there. But we all knew to get out to the middle of this swamp area where there was kind of an island, kind of a redneck Riviera. And we would all try to get out there. And what was fascinating about it, it took a good hour or so to get out there, sometimes two hours. But as we got towards the end of the day, these were all strangers. We all lived in the same city, but we didn't know each other. Somehow or another, there would be a bonfire master elected. Again, we didn't take a formal vote, but somebody was the bonfire master who would go out and find the right branches and twigs and start building the fire. And then they would tend to that fire. And if the fire was too strong and too raging, it would scare everybody off. And if the fire went down, everybody would leave because there really wasn't anything to see. So the bonfire master's job was to get that fire just perfect, which is kind of like what a brand manager should be doing or what a CEO or leader should be doing is tending to that bonfire. And that bonfire needs to have the ability to get people to crawl two, three miles out into the woods to deal with mosquitoes and harsh realities. And it has to have an enchantment, a mystique. It has to have something that will bring people together and that it will create that social bond of a temporary community. That, to me, is the job of almost every company out there, whether you have a physical building or an online building. You have to find some way to bring people together, and you have to tend to that fire. And we all know some brands have let their fires overburn. Uh, to some degree, Harley-Davidson has done that. To some degree, Apple might be doing that. Coca-Cola is doing that. And somehow or you have to stop those forces that want to build the fire too big and say, we've got to bring the fire back down. It's losing its mystique. It's losing its intrigue. And so this idea has really helped me all the way through my career going, whenever I look at a place or an entity, I try to figure out, well, where's the bonfire? Where does it happen? I'm interested about the bonfire and leading that, but from your business perspective, how do you balance both leading the creative edge of Shook Kelly and then also running the business side of things? <laughs> um, it is a, a never-ending series of problems, as as all businesses are. And I think, you know, I think when I was young, I kind of thought if you build a successful business, it will take care of itself. And I never really thought about the idea that the more success you have, the more you're going to fail. That was a hard idea for me to understand. And what I mean by that is, as you grow and expand, you just increase the number of areas and opportunities to not fully deliver on your staff culture or not fully deliver on your promotion aspects or your banking relationships or your client processes. So many areas. It's a 10 ring circus that we're running. And no matter, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole and you figure one side out and the other side comes out. And I think when I was young, I was such a perfectionist that I, I had a hard time dealing with failing, to be honest. I, I really I wasn't used to it and I would just kill myself. And I kind of lost my own personal life because I was spending all my time just working on, you know, trying to fix everything. And as you get older and as you go through ups and downs of the natural world that we live in with great recessions and Washington changes all the time. And, you know, it's, you, you get to a point where you've seen and experienced everything you start to realize that problems are just a normal part of the business. They are always there, 
And the more successful you are, the more problems you're going to deal with. And you have to figure out how to build systems and to delegate. And that's a hard process. Uh, uh, I I could talk a little bit more about that in just a second, but I kind of look at it like the way you go out and jog every day, the way you go out and run every day. Sometimes you, you wake up and you go, why am I jogging? What's the point? You know, there's nobody seeing me. There's no victory lane and, and it's cold outside or it's rainy or the road's bumpy. But you just get out and run that race every day. You just get out and do it every day at like clockwork. And for some reason, if you just get up every day and solve problems, over time, you will find you're going to be in such great shape and such great condition. And you'll be ready to really cross that finish line when you get there. But it isn't even, this sounds very cliche, it's, but it's not even really about the finish line. It's about just putting in the work every day. And so uh, the problems are just always there and they increase, you know, as you get bigger and better, as you expand and grow more offices. Yep. The life of an entrepreneur. You're talking about going out and just accomplishing these things each day. When you're assessing those, are these little tasks or are you trying to move boulders? Well, you're generally trying to do both. You know, you you really have to have a strategic vision and you've constantly got to be thinking about that. And, you know, I I think what happens in most businesses I encounter is they had a great idea at one point in time. They, the founders of the original entity had a theory on the market and they chose to do some things, but not other things, which is a very important statement to me. They let go of something else and started with a niche. But over time, as companies get bigger and the world has these massive kind of cultural changes, companies oftentimes find out what they originally had, the value they created is no longer valuable. And you constantly have to reassess that. In the old days, I think you could last 10 years, 20 years with an idea that had value. And I think those cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter because we're so interconnected now that companies have to just constantly and regularly assess the value they create for the world and say, what is the value we create? And do we capture that value? Do people recognize that value? So a big part of my job and my partner's job is constantly thinking about the value we create and really saying, you know, is, is this value still relevant? Is it still contemporary? And it's a constant change to, you know, deal with that. But you mentioned the kind of tactical problems. Those are never ending. I mean, those just come up every day. And again, you try to create systems to deal with those problems, but it is a myth to think you will ever get rid of all of them. Somebody's going to deal with those problems and you're going to have to deal with the person who's having to deal with the problems (laughs) and keeping them together and figuring out ways to deal with that. So I think for most people, that takes a while to learn. I, I don't think you come out of the box ready to go with that. And You know, if I could extend this, I I think uh, I've read everything in business. Um, I taught at Harvard for 11 years and was around a lot of great thinkers in business. And so I've read all the great classics and understand those. In fact, I realized at a point that I read too many haiku, high strategy, high thinking books. And what I really needed to understand was the mechanics of management. And I don't think there's a lot of good books just on the mechanics of business. Um, And the last great recession, I decided I was going to really look at management um, as as my big kind of thing to crack next, not haiku management, but really 
basic mechanics of it. And you've probably read these books, but I found a lot out of um, the Rockefeller Habits book. And I found a lot out of the E-Myth book. I believe it's called the E-Myth book. Hopefully I got that name right. Yeah, you did. Uh, those two books really kind of, that was the closest I had seen to the mechanics. And Patrick Lachoni's books too on team. Uh, I, I'd say that suite of those three books really got me there. And, and the irony is I had bought those books many years prior to that and just wasn't interested in them. It wasn't until I was in my, probably whenever the recession was there, my 20th year that I started going, that's what I got to do next is really think about that. And I, I think the word team became my new thing. The word accountability and role definition became my new thing. And then really working on a plan to how you reach your ultimate goals, you know, uh, doing it, breaking it down into pieces and, and figuring out a strategy for each month, each quarter, each year each five-year, each 10-year. That really helped us a lot. So you mentioned some of those books and some of the the practical applications. Are there uh, just a handful of key concepts when managing and, and thinking about the basics? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I've i tried it all. I mean, in terms of management styles, uh, I really have. And my partner and I talk about it all the time. And we've tried open structure, you know, uh, shared profits, uh, all different types, titles, roles, all of that. And it takes a while for every culture to figure out what they want. And, and each of us has to decide what kind of company we want. And for my partner and I, we didn't, we didn't want to create a culture where we didn't enjoy walking in the door. That was like such a simple thing for us. We're like, but we don't want to be in a business where we don't enjoy coming in the door and enjoy leaving. And that may sound odd, but a lot of us have companies, we've all worked at companies before where we don't even like our own place. Um, I worked for a boss previous to my company, and he had, uh, just call it frankly, had a couple assholes in the firm. And I could never understand why he had the assholes. I was like, why do you have that guy? And he would say, well, that guy brings in a lot of business for the firm. And I was like, do, do you like him? And he's like, no, I can't stand him, but he does a lot for the firm. And I was like, I just can't imagine spending the rest of my life with somebody in a, in a business and thinking about what one bad seed can do to a whole culture just because of the business it brings in. And so when my partner and I started the firm, we had these kind of uh, real powerful edicts and a start of a conversation that we've never forgotten. And that was around, at that point in time, we said we really wanted to have control of our destiny. And we did not want to be, I don't create a firm where we had to take jobs just to take them or we had to do things or had to deal with people just because and we thought, you know, could we actually have a firm where we could uh, turn down jobs, just say, you know, I don't want to do that job or we could um, pick and choose who we want to work for. And the thing we realized, well, that comes with a trade-off. We're, that means we're going to be small. And we thought at the time in 1992, we thought, well, that means it will be six to seven people. Um, that is not the case. Actually, you can choose your destiny as long as you just don't chase growth too much. If I was to say there was any enemy to any entity, any company out there, it's growth. Growth is the thing that is the hardest thing to deal with. Not, not, not the lack of business, but too much business and trying to figure out how to get it out is where most companies get into trouble. And when you get big and large and you're growing is when a lot of mistakes are made. And so... Our firm it fluctuates depending on you know how much work we're doing, what air we're in, 
anywhere from 50 to 75 people. And there have been times when we could be 150 people and we don't want to be that big, but we don't enjoy that. And so our first most important priority is teamwork. Um, and we define, we've kind of extrapolated ideas that we've learned from others, such as Patrick Latoni and his book. Um, we've really defined team as somebody I can be, that I can trust, that I can be vulnerable with, that I can share my ideas with, but more than anything, somebody that will pass the ball, that you can play with them on the team and they don't have to make every shot, but they will share the shots with you. You might say, as opposed to what? Well, I used to hire prima donnas. I didn't realize that, but I was hiring super intelligent people, very gifted and very talented, could make the shot every time, um, but they didn't like to pass the ball. They really had no interest in passing the ball. And I made that mistake for a long time. And I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. As great as our firm was and as successful as we were at delivering product, there just was something that wasn't connecting for me. And once I figured out this idea of teamwork, which means you take a bunch of, uh, and I'm not saying my company's average because I have superstars, but theoretically you can take a bunch of average people and teach them how to play on a team and pass the ball and play to a system. And my belief is they will outbeat a superstar team, a superstar player any day now. Um, the other thinker that I'm sure you've read a lot before, Warren Venice, I believe it's his name, wrote the, a lot about Coach Wooten. It's the same idea. Just play the system. You see it with Alabama as well. And so teamwork is the number one criteria I look for now. Not talent, not intelligence. I really try to figure out if somebody can play on a team. The second concept I really look for is, is or a principle I guess we apply is, can we define their role on the team? What Do they play first base, second base, outfield? Are they a coach? But be very clear about that role. And then third, hold them accountable for that role. Those kind of three concepts, team, role definition, and accountability, has really helped us a lot in managing our culture. Um, I mean, I'd say it made an exponential difference in our company when we started implementing that about maybe 12 years ago now. What led to the implementation of this? Was it just having too many prima donnas? Yeah, I think as you evolve as a company and, and you reach new milestones, I, I had already you know, got the business fluid with cash. My partner and I, again, both did that. He's exceptionally good at that. Um, but, you know, we, we understood how to keep the business going. We had gotten high-profile clients. We had won awards and were highly recognized for our field. But I still was working so hard in the business. Um, as the E-Myth book talks about, I just found myself constantly working and never really getting a break. You know, the, the, the thing I'd reached a point in my career was people would ask me, you know, well, they'd tell me how great it is that I'm own company. And, there were moments when I thought, you know, if I had all over again, I wouldn't start my own company because um, it comes at such a price. Despite all the success and the the benefits of success, it, it just uh, it, it you you deal with it on Sunday, on Super Bowl night, on Christmas Day. I mean, it's just there's always a new thing you've got to deal with, and you try to delegate and you try to build systems. But I realized I just wasn't happy with that, and. As I really looked around, I, I realized that we weren't playing on a team well. Uh, we, we, the prima donnas who could make the shot every game were actually demoralizing the rest of the staff. They were so good at making the shot. The staff might work on something in a month, and the Michael Jordan 
employee I have would just come in and make the shot in two seconds and waste all the time the other people did. And so what would happen, the people gave up. The rest of the crew stopped contributing. And I realized we weren't really we weren't really getting everybody to work. It's like having uh, 20 tractors in your farm and using two of them. And I'm like, we need to use every tractor or every piece of equipment needs to be productive and, and for their own joy and satisfaction. And so um, that was my next plateau was to figure out how to make the business not so not so intensive that I couldn't pull away from it. Uh, as the book said, working in the business versus on the business. And I didn't have a lot of time to work on the business. Um, and so teamwork was the key to that. And, um, you know, it's one of those light bulbs that goes off in your head when you're ready. You know, there's that famous saying says that the teacher will teach when the pupil is ready. Uh, for 20 years, I wasn't ready for that lesson. I really wasn't. And, you know, I go to my dentist, who's a phenomenal dentist, and I look at how hard she works. She works every day. If she doesn't show up, the business really closes down for the day. So, you know, there's no business because nobody wants to trust anybody else but the dentist. And that's not a great business. It's just not a good way to exist. And I can't tell you the number of companies I see that they're like dentists. Um, if they don't show up, the business doesn't work. When you're building out this team, I'm thinking about your hiring process. Do you have any fundamentals or can you sort of explain what your process might be? Yeah, I, I think once we, once we got this lens, this new factor of teamwork, which we didn't have previously, um, we had great criteria, but we didn't have that criteria. Um, once we started using that, our interview process is really trying to filter out uh, the team issue. And so we let people tell us their biography. Uh, we have a very interesting interview process, which is much more of a conversation. And uh, people don't realize it, but we, you know, what we're doing, but we do it the same way we do when we're researching consumers. If you go and formally research a consumer with a notepad and a clipboard, they will feel like they're giving a presentation in high school English class. And they will try to say intelligent things and they won't say the truth. But if you have a casual conversation with somebody and get them laughing and get them just feeling really comfortable with you, they'll tell you everything you need to know. Most importantly, they'll tell you how they see the world, the, the kind of their biography. And so when we do interviews, we do everything we can to get them to talk about what pisses them off in life, what makes them happy. What was the job they loved? What was the job they hate? Um, and embedded in all that, we're getting closer and closer to figuring out, do they like to pass the ball? Do they like to play? Do they really care about the other players on the team? And that's a very important criteria. And so we start first with just a lot of casual conversations. And once we get past that, then we eventually start really, if we make it to a second interview level, then we really start talking about our value system of teamwork is most important and that they will be evaluated on their ability to play on a team, that it'll be the number one criteria. And that kind of, you know, it, it shocks some potential candidates. Some candidates, you'd be surprised, are not interested in playing on a team. They're individualist and they're interested in, you know, making their own career successful. And so that's a very important criteria for us. How long does that interview process happen? You know, we tend to um, 
do at least two to three interviews before we ever hire anybody. Um, we are almost reticent to hire uh, people where a lot of companies will just throw bodies at stuff. We don't do that at all. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time in our senior strategy meetings talking about not just throwing anybody on the team just to go after the problem because that's going to create a problem later that we have to deal with. So we're very good about vetting out people and we'll actually have that person meet with five individuals before we hire them. And so we have a first interview that'll be anywhere from an hour to two hours of just casual conversation, getting to know them. Um, we ask a lot of questions. I mentioned earlier, you know, we ask about, you know, what's the best job they have, what, what pisses them off in life or what's the maddest they ever got at a job. That that's the real interesting one that people will tell you a lot more about it. But we ask a lot about what they like to do in their personal life. And I learn more by asking them, what do they do outside of work? Cause then they really start telling me about who they are and what they're about. Um, that helps me a lot. And I really start asking about their dreams. I want to know what their dreams in life were and what they dreamt of when they were a kid. Cause that starts to help me understand their biography as well. But we do that one interview and then we do the second interview where we lay more of our values down. And the third interview, we're really trying to make sure they fully understand what we do and how we'll evaluate them. Um, and them knowing up front that they're going to be evaluated on the ability to play on a team really helps them understand. Um, some people need, because they've been in bad environments, kind of a Darwin fight for survival, individualistic environment. Sometimes they're not necessarily wired that way. You just kind of have to change their mentality and get them back focused on it. And, you know, it's interesting to me on a football team, how different each person might be. You can look at college or pro or even high school on a football team. You might have one person that's a Christian and, and, you know, doesn't drink, doesn't do anything. You might have another person that's wild and into all kinds of things. And you might have another person that is, you know, some odd out of norm philosophical person but when they get on that field they play as a team and that to me is that that really important element how do you get everybody to really go look we might all have differences but once we're on the field together we play as a team if you don't really carefully develop that that mentality it can get out of hand where people are individualistically trying to shape the culture and and that's not what we really want when you have someone on this team, you've hired them, how do you maximize their potential? I mean, you're juggling so many different things. Uh, I'm sure it must be easy to lose sight uh, of progressing your people day in and day out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's with all companies. I think we all fail at really kind of maximizing our, our, our employees and really trying to find out, are they happy? And I, I think a lot of managers, including myself, sometimes are afraid to ask an employee, are you happy? But I, I think it's an important thing to do on a regular basis to really check in with them and see how they're doing. And it's something that is hard to do. Um, I travel quite a bit and I'm not here all the time. And when I am here, it's an incredible amount of work that I've got to do. So I have to delegate a lot of that. I have to really say, you know, I used to try to do it all myself. And now I really try to develop teams of people that can really check in on others. So I check in on about seven leaders, and those seven leaders check on the rest of the leaders. And uh, I do try to spend time with the people, uh, my staff, when I can. But I, I will admit it's it's a hard process, and um, 
I think every human being really has hopes and dreams, particularly career-wise. And the types of people I hire, their work is very important to them. And I have to really find ways that the company can help progress them. And, you know, some people... Some people like to play different positions and some people like to do different things. We call it going wide. And we have a chart that we use to kind of evaluate people. And some people really want to go wide in the firm. And what I mean by that is they want to they want to try everything. They want to play every base. They want to figure out what it's like to manage the money side and write proposals and deal with legal issues and do creative. But we have other people that just want to go deep. They want to stay in their narrow niche and just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And once I understood that, it helped me to try to understand what each person wants. And we actually bring that chart out when we talk to employees to go, you know, where do you feel you want to go? And it changes. When you're young, you tend to go deep. You tend to really try to develop one skill really well. But as you get older and mature, some people like to go wide. Uh, To be clear, though, some people never want to go wide. Um, if I could elaborate a little more on that, some people just want to work on the product and work with, you know, work on the product we make, but don't want to deal with the other business aspects. But there are other staff members that say, no, I really want to learn all of the business. And we oftentimes say in our firm, if you work here, you'll learn how to run your own firm because we'll give you as much say, as much responsibility as you want to, you want to grab hold of. But I think it's important to understand what a person's comfortable with. The worst thing you can do is take a person that really just wants to work on the product and have them deal with management issues, uh, management of other people or clients or even the firm. That can take your best chef's knives and dull them. This might be an odd question, but along the lines of what we're talking about and developing employees, and it seems like you've done a tremendous amount of self-work and really distilled down how you work best, how you operate. How far along do you feel you are on your path of really discovering what makes you tick? (laughs) It's a great question. Um, You know, I am definitely a seasoned veteran now. Um, I think all of us in our lives feel young. We we really do. And we look at people above us and think they're old. But there eventually is one day when you realize you're older than you thought, (laughs) particularly when you go out in the world and you you, you see uh, fashion styles coming back for the second time. And you're like, oh my gosh, I remember that in the 70s. And I remember that in the 90s. And now it's in 2019. And you realize you're old or, or you say something to somebody and they don't know what you're talking about. And, and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm much older than I thought. Um, and it will, there is a comfort level when you get older. I, I think you know, a lot of my clients that are older get worried that they're not up to speed on social media or technology, but what they discount is wisdom. And, you know, my parents don't have the training I have or the experiences I have, but they're both very, very smart and very accomplished, but, you know, they're much older. But I still can call my mom or my dad and they give me the best advice I've ever had. Uh, it's amazing the advice they give me. And it it blows me away sometimes. I'm like, how do they know that? And my mom says it. It's wisdom. And wisdom goes a long way. And um, while we may not be as up to speed on all the latest technologies, wisdom goes a long way. And so when you get older, it's one of the comforting things about getting older is wisdom. You also tend to numb out a little bit. Not everything's a crisis. Not everything has to be a freak out. You've survived other wars, and you know you'll survive the future wars. And you start to get a little more comfortable with what you want and not 
you, you don't do things you don't want to do. And that, that becomes very important as long as you don't become too rigid in that. But, but you start to say, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and I know we will survive and continue going no matter what, because we, we've made it all the way this far. And um, so, so there's a real comfort in that. And so, yeah, I figured out definitely what makes me tick. And there's a lot more happiness and joy. Uh, as I said earlier, I look at it kind of like running every day just getting out there and running and the joy of running and the quest of running. Um, there's something about getting up every day and doing it, but am I done? No, by no means am I done. Uh, I myself, and I think most human beings believe their next best chapters are ahead of them. And so I've got all kind of chapters ahead of me, uh, doing great work, doing different types of work, building even a better culture and building better systems. Those are definitely out there for me. And, um, and I'm very intrigued with those next chapters. And so I'm constantly thinking about what are those things? Um, you know, I, I, if I could add on this, I think most business people who are building a business, I, I think what they dream of, uh, despite their successes, what they dream of is to see the thing that they created with their bare hands, starting in a you know back room. I started in an attic space with my partner in my condo, this firm, you know, I mean, it, it, with nothing. And when you build a firm like that, what you really dream of is seeing the thing stand up on its own and run itself. That's what you dream of. And, and I guess it's kind of like your kid. You dream of your kid getting equipped enough that they can take on the world. And I know my parents dreamt that for me, and I know they worried a thousand times, was I going to be able to live in a house and take care of the house and make a living and not go you know, bankrupt or bounce checks? And uh, I remember my father said one time, he was so happy to see me gainfully employed. <laughs> and, uh, and I know what he means by that. And I, I think that's what you dream for your firm. You want to see it stand up and... Um, I think it stands up on its own now, but um, you, you just want to get to that point where it runs itself. So what is that like? I mean, Shook Kelly is standing on its own. You've gotten to that point. How do you balance that and then also aspire for new things? Well, you constantly got to keep evaluating that value, as I said. You really got to keep coming in every year or two and, and saying, okay, what is the value we create? And is that value still relevant? Um, as I said earlier, you know, every company is trying to create systems to deal with inefficiencies. And that's an important quest. And you tend to hire people to help deal with those inefficiencies. I think that's what all of management is about is efficiency. Management equals efficiency to me. But innovation isn't about efficiency. Innovation is about risk. And it's about experimentation. And those things are at odds. And so when I go to most companies, what I realize is they have too many managers who are trying to focus entirely on efficiency, what we kind of call supply-side thinking. They're just thinking about how to supply the product, but there's generally not enough people thinking about how to create the demand. And the supply-side people get very frustrated that, that why do we need this? You know, why, How do I become a demand thinker? And they're generally not wired for that way. And so you've got to make sure your firm has both supply side thinkers and demand side thinkers, and they're not going to get along because create people that create demand are going to have a lot of inefficiencies. They're going to make mistakes. And so in our firm, we're constantly trying to balance that 
figure out the efficiency system side, but have a different group that's constantly trying to think about the new value, the new market, the new demand side. And that demand is constantly going to be changing. Um, sometimes at small incremental levels and sometimes at major upheaval levels. Uh, this issue we've had with the internet and the connected world is a massive upheaval. I mean, it has totally changed businesses. Um, but when we finish that, there will be a lot of incremental ones. And so thinking about the value you create is very important. I'm interested how you assess mistakes. We were talking for a while there about failure. Do you personally look back on your failures, assess them, or do you fail and move on? <laughs> no, I obsess about my failures. <laughs> I, I acknowledge them. And uh, it's like a, a burning ball that ran through and crushed buildings. You know, and you think about you think about all the things you've done and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'd like that. I'd like a do-over on that, a mulligan, but you, you know, you don't, and you're going to make mistakes. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to when you're young, you're trying to build your ego. You're trying to, you know, accomplish things and, and sometimes blind ambition um, and overconfidence and idealism is exactly what you need in the beginning. You, you need that chutzpah, you need that drive and that audacity and boldness and overconfidence to just get out there and do it. You need that. But you do eventually hit a wall where that's not working. And and most people don't realize that, that they need to stop building their ego. They need to start getting rid of it. And when you reach that point, and you know, I probably reached it. <laughs> I'm laughing at myself because maybe I haven't reached it, but I, I probably reached it 15 years ago in terms of saying, okay, stop. You make a lot of mistakes when you're building your ego. Um, I mean, but I want to be fair to this. I I don't believe you can have big vision without big ego. I I think big vision requires an ego. And sometimes people want big vision with no ego. And I I don't think it'll happen. You you just have to have that drive, that tenacity, that determination, um, even a hint of narcissism to go, I'm going to build this thing, uh, come hell or high water. But when you do reach that point and you realize it's time to shift gears and you start getting rid of your ego and you start listening, um, then that's a nice phase. It's kind of like the seasons of your life and you kind of shift into a new season and you realize your mistakes. Um, I haven't done it as much and everywhere as I'd like to, but I've oftentimes gone back to the situations or the people that I've made mistakes and said, you know what, I was wrong in that. Um, and I'm sorry for that. And it's done a lot for me. Um, I, I worked with one of my college roommates who was a great guy, and uh, and I burned him out. I burned him out because of my drive. And, um, you know, I eventually kind of had him leave the firm. And I, every entrepreneur does that, you know, where they take the core group of people you started with and you can burn them out um, without meaning to, you know. And uh, many years later, I, I went to him and just, you know, took him to lunch. And I, I think he was, thought we were going to have a big fight or I was upset with him or an act of betrayal or something. But I just went and met with him and said, look, I'm sorry. I was wrong about that. And I regret that. Um, and I, I think there's a million of those situations that you make and you try to go back. Some of them you can't forget. Some of them you just got to go, you know, that's a mistake I made and I, I just got to do better in the future. But. Yeah, I'm constantly doing that. But 
the, the one thing I'd say is that I think everything you do in business is a bet, a gamble, an experiment. Every day you're, you're, you're taking bets and gambles. And I don't gamble at casinos. I've never gambled at all. And people go, why don't I do a lot of lectures in Vegas? And I go, you know, would you like to gamble? I don't gamble because I gamble enough every day with tens of millions of dollars of our own firm and hundreds of millions of dollars of our clients' money. And you're going to make bets and they're not all going to work out. Many of them are going to fail and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to lose things and even sometimes hurt people. But those part of the casualties of the war. if you take it too hard, you won't be able to do what you need to do. Kevin, thank you. That was that was some of the most truthful and authentic five minutes I've heard someone talk about. And I just got so much out of those last five minutes. So I just want to thank you for that. There are Good. a million different directions I could go right now. And this conversation could be 10 more hours. I know we don't have that time. I am interested, though. You mentioned some of the model thinkers that you've read about or – kind of distilled some of your concepts down. Any model thinkers besides Churchill and some of the other books you mentioned you'd recommend? You know, uh, I just finished Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, which has been around for a while. Um, and you know how you hear about a book and you just don't jump on it like everybody else did. I did not jump on it. Um, but then I did. I finally did. And I read it while I, I was in Japan and Vietnam the last few weeks. and. Um, Wow, I might say it's one of the best business books I've ever read for an entrepreneur. It's not for everybody, but if you're an entrepreneur and you're going through it, that's a pretty amazing book. Um, I've got a lot out of that book. But I've also gotten a lot out of other types of business books. I read a book, and I'm not going to remember the name, about the founder of DHL that was about the craziest journey I think I've ever read about a leader. And uh, you'll have to find the name of that book, or I will. But it was an amazing book. Um, it really inspired me and it was wacky and kooky, but it just tells you the, how the eccentrics really get out there and do something. There's a really old book, um, that blew my mind away. And it was written by John Scully, who was originally the head of Pepsi and Steve Jobs hired him to come run Apple. And he wrote a book later called Odyssey. And it is an incredible book because John Scully admits that he tried to build a better Apple organization and his product didn't really make it. I believe it was the Lisa or something else, one of those other products. And Steve Jobs was kind of out in his own company and he went off, you know, out to pasture. They put him in some barn and he invented the new Macintosh. And he chronicles that kind of story. And that is a a really amazing story to me and, and looking at, you know, what happens. Um, there are probably 20 other biographies I could talk about and maybe I'll provide you with a list of some books. Um, but I've read all the, you know, all the classic kind of strategy thinkers. Uh, you might've read good strategy, bad strategy. I think it's an excellent book. Um, I'll have to think about some of the other ones, but there's a, a great list of books out there that certainly influenced me and I'm constantly reading and I believe everybody else should. It's a great way to get perspective on your own business. Yeah, I'm an obsessive reader and I'm going away on vacation next week. So I have a whole new list of books I can't wait to dive into. 
Kevin, this conversation has been somewhat of a journey. This has been so fascinating for myself. I, I truly do appreciate you sharing about yourself, your philosophies, your concepts. Uh, I've gotten so much out of this conversation. I'm hoping we can do a follow-up because there are so many things I want to discuss. But but where can the listeners best stay connected with you, find out more about Chuck Kelly? You know, uh, I am one of those guys that is not as connected with social media as I should be. Um, and my staff is, but the best way to reach me is at, you know, www.shookkelly.com or my personal email, which is Kevin Kelly at shookkelly.com. You just have to remember my last name, Kelly, it's K E L L E Y. Uh, so Kevin Kelly with an E Y at shookkelly with an E Y.com. And that's generally the best way to reach me. I'm based in Los Angeles. Uh, we have a Charlotte, North Carolina office as well where my partner, Terry Shook, uh, heads up that office. Fantastic. We'll have all that linked up in the show notes. But once again, Kevin Kelly, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much, Sean. And I'm so impressed with your program and what you're doing. And I admire that you've gone out and made something like this happen. I'm, I'm envious of it because I, I think you get to really surf a lot of great ideas and hear a lot of great concepts and principles and stories. So uh, I'm in awe of what you've created and uh, it's very impressive. And I look forward to learning more about it. I appreciate that. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? 
Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.